You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. This is the ninth and final week of Known, a study on the Gospel of John. This week we discuss John chapters 20 through 21 and talk about living in light of the resurrection. It changes everything. This teaching corresponds with the homework that begins on page 59 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com known. This lesson wraps up our spring 2017 Bible study. We'll be back in the fall with a new study on a new book. Stay tuned to leslieannjones.com for details. Easter is my most favorite holiday. It trumps Christmas for me, which... Maybe it didn't when I was a kid, but now that I'm older, I mean, it's better than the presents, it's better than the lights, and, and even the Christmas carols, which are wonderful, I love those. I love the resurrection songs more. They are um, life-giving, and they are just full of hope. It's better than my birthday, believe it or not. It's better than fireworks at the 4th of July or any of those things. It is far better than anything, and it's my favorite but because where there was once only death, where there was once only sin and misery and sadness and sorrow and grief, that life abounds because sorrow is transformed into joy because everything that was once broken is put back together. It's the foretaste of glory divine like we sing in the songs. It's the preview of the main event. It's like the trailer of that movie you want to see, and you keep waiting, and you wait, and you wait for it to come out. You just can't wait because that taste um, of what you have seen has made you long for the actual movie. And it's the same way with Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection shows us what we're looking forward to. It's something that anchors us, that it's the hope that we cling to when it seems like all is lost. Frederick Beekner talks about Easter. He says this, The Gospels are far from clear as to just what happened. It began in the dark. The stone had been rolled aside. Matthew alone speaks of an earthquake. In the tomb, there were two white-clad figures, or possibly just one. Mary Magdalene seems to have gotten there before anybody else. There was a man she thought at first was the gardener. Perhaps Mary, the mother of James, was with her and another woman named Joanna. One account says Peter came, too, with one of the other disciples. Elsewhere, the suggestion is that there were only the women and that the disciples, who were somewhere else, didn't believe the women's story when they heard it. There was the sound of people running, of voices. Matthew speaks of fear and great joy. Confusion was everywhere. There is no agreement even as to the role of Jesus himself. Did he appear at the tomb or only later? Where? To whom did he appear? What did he say? What did he do? It is not a major production at all. And the minor attractions we have created around it, the bunnies and baskets and bonnets, the dyed eggs, have so little to do with what it's all about that they neither add much nor subtract much. It's not really even much of a story when you come right down to it, and that is, of course, the power of it. It doesn't have the ring of great drama. It has the ring of truth. If the gospel writers had wanted to tell it in a way to convince the world that Jesus indeed rose from the dead, they would presumably have done it with all the skill and fanfare they could muster. 
Here, there is no skill, no fanfare. They seem to be telling it simply the way it was. The narrative is as fragmented, shadowy, and incomplete as life itself. When it comes to just what happened, there can be no certainty. That something unimaginable happened, there can be no doubt. The symbol of Easter is the empty tomb. You can't depict or domesticate emptiness. You can't make it into pageants and string it with lights. It doesn't move people to give presents to each other or sing old songs. It ebbs and flows all around us, the Easter tide. Even the great choruses of Handel's Messiah sound a little like a handful of crickets chirping under the moon. He rose. A few saw him briefly and talked to him. If it is true, there is nothing left to say. If it is not true, there is nothing left to say. For believers and unbelievers both, life has never been the same again. For some, neither has death. What is left now is the emptiness. There are those who, like Magdalene, will never stop searching it till they find his face. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter and the twelve, along with more than 500 believers at one time. Paul is looking back over those 40 days that Jesus was on earth after his resurrection and before he went back to heaven at his ascension, he, and he says he appeared to more than 500 people during all of this. In John's account, he appears to Mary. He appears to the disciples together in the closed room twice. And then he appears to them at the Sea of Galilee where they are fishing. So there's that one. In the other Gospels, there's another account where he appears to Peter. And then to another disciple who we've never heard of before, Cleopas. And someone else who is with him, he appears to them on the road to Emmaus. And so all of them, as he meets with them, are filled with this kind of shock and wonder. They don't all recognize him for who he is at first. There's some kind of mystery surrounding him. But the wonder and the awe is always there. The sense of, how can this be? How is it possible that you're standing in front of me is there so it seems that whatever they were expecting to happen after Jesus died, whatever Mary, Magdalene, and the other women were expecting to find at the tomb that morning, it was not the resurrection. That's not what they thought would happen. But in John's account, he gives us only the barest of the details about what happens. And you can see that wonder, and you can see the awe, and you can see their shock over all of it that starts in John chapter 20, verse 1, with Mary Magdalene and the empty tomb. We should maybe give a little bit of background about her, because this is the first time she's mentioned in John. Luke tells us in chapter 8 that Jesus cast seven demons out of her, and because of her gratitude for that act, she was following him from town to town as he went and preached and and taught. Now, there are some traditions that say that she was the one who broke the alabaster jar at his feet, or that um, she was a harlot. Have you ever heard that? That she was a prostitute? But those traditions are really kind of combining different stories in the Gospels, and they're ascribing aspects of unnamed women to Mary Magdalene, okay? So that was not necessarily her. The only thing that is explicitly said about her 
is that she was demon-possessed and Jesus cast him out, that she followed him in his ministry, that she was there at the cross, that she was there when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body to the tomb, and then she goes back again on that Sunday morning. She wanted to make sure that things were done properly. So they had to wait a day. Friday was Good Friday. Jesus died on that day, on, and they took his body and they buried it in the tomb. But the Sabbath began for Jews at sundown on Friday and lasted until sundown on Saturday. So that was the entire day. And as a Jew, she observed the Sabbath as she always had. It was part of the fabric of her life. On that day of waiting, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us much about what happened on that Saturday. Um, Friday night they buried Jesus, and then I can imagine that Saturday was full of disbelief and grief, that it was a dark, dark day for his believers, because even though they wanted to go and do the things that must be done, they wanted to attend to his body, they wanted to make sure that things were done properly for him, they had to stop and they had to wait until Sunday morning, and Mary went as soon as she had a chance. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She is hysterical when she finds the tomb empty. But she's thinking logically, really. Because she's thinking on human terms. She's trying to explain what she sees. The first thought in her mind is not supernatural. She doesn't automatically think, he's risen from the dead. It's the last thing that comes to her mind. She explains it in human terms. And in her experience, apart from Lazarus, when people died, they stayed dead. That's been my experience. Has that been yours? And so if you put yourself in her shoes and you go to the tomb to attend someone's body and it's not there, then you don't automatically think, he got up and walked away. That's not what you think. You think somebody took him, somebody moved him because dead people don't move themselves. She runs and tells um, Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we're going to assume it's John. Most scholars do assume that it's John. So... She said to them, They have taken the Lord. We do not know where they have laid laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. There was something about those neatly folded cloths that tipped off John, that something else was going on here. And logically speaking, it makes sense. If someone had taken Jesus' body, if robbers had come or someone else had carried him off somewhere, they wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap the shroud 
and fold the face cloth neatly and leave it there. If you're robbing a grave, you do it in a hurry, I assume. I wouldn't know from personal experience, but I would guess that you don't want to get caught, so you do it with haste. You don't want to be seen. So you wouldn't take the time to straighten up behind yourself and make sure that everything's folded neatly. And it's not clear exactly from the text what exactly John believes. It says he saw it and believed. But then in the very next verse, it says they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. It might just be that he gets an inkling that there's something deeper going on, that something else is happening. Maybe he remembers the talk that Jesus gave them in the upper room where he told them, your sorrow will last for a little while, but it will turn to joy, where he says, I am coming back. Maybe he's remembering those things. Maybe he believes that what Jesus said was true, even though they didn't have a full understanding of all the ways this had been foretold in Scripture throughout the history of the Bible. I don't know. There's, there's room here for speculating on what it was that he believed. But something about it told him that it wasn't just an issue of grave robbery, that something else was going on, and that there was something significant happening. In verse 11 it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, most of the time in the Bible, when people encounter angels, they fall on their faces, and they're met with fear and trembling. And the first words out of the angel's mouth are usually, Fear not. But that's not what happens here. I think Mary is so wrapped up in her grief. She is so overcome by her distress that it doesn't even strike her as strange that there are two men in the tomb who weren't there before. Some of the other accounts, Matthew, I think, tells us that when the angels appeared, you know, that the women were a little freaked out by their presence, but we don't get that in John. John just gives us, he states the fact there were angels. They asked her what was wrong. She said, I don't know where they have taken my Lord. And in that just simple statement, my Lord, you can see her devotion to him. She cared very deeply for him. He had changed her life as a woman who had been demon possessed. She would have been on the outskirts of society. She would not have been in polite company. That's for sure. She would have been unclean and unable to participate in any of the rituals at the temple unable to worship. She would not have had a family life that was much to speak of. By casting out those demons, Jesus had literally transformed her life. And she loved him. You can see that and and the depth of her emotion that she's showing here. And the only thing she was concerned about, she was not concerned about those random men in the tomb. Like, didn't bother her at all that there were two angels sitting there. What she was concerned about was finding Jesus. She was looking for him. She had a single purpose, and that was finding her Lord. 
She couldn't wait. She wanted to find him. And so she turns away from the angels and she catches sight of someone else in the corner of her eye. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away as if she can carry the dead body by herself. But she, she's not thinking rationally at that point. And it's interesting to me because she's standing there face to face with Jesus and she still does not recognize him. There's something, it seems, about the resurrected Jesus that is different than it was before. He is not the same as he was. He has been transfigured, transformed into an immortal, perfect, imperishable version of himself that is apparently hard to recognize until he deems that it's the right time. He's right there with her, but his identity is veiled, and she doesn't know who she's talking to. She has no idea that it's him, completely oblivious to the fact that Jesus is standing right in front of her, that the one that she's looking for is there. She wasn't looking for someone who was living and breathing and able to stand in front of her and talk to her. She was looking for a dead body. Her confusion, her lack of recognition is logical in a way because he was the last person that she expected to see and talk to. She was looking for a dead body, not someone that was alive. Paul, again in 1 Corinthians 15, talks about this kind of transformation between the mortal bodies that we currently have and the immortal bodies that we will one day have when Jesus comes back, when we are transformed in an instant. The body that died on the cross with Jesus was a human body. It was full of weakness, just like ours. It could die, you know, but the body that he was wearing after the resurrection has been made perfect and transformed completely. Now, I don't know exactly how it was different, but we know that it was different enough that those who were closest to him didn't recognize him. And it's not just Mary. Later on in chapter 21, when we get there, we'll see that the disciples don't recognize him when they're doing the fishing. He calls out to them from the shore. They don't recognize him. Granted, it's 100 yards away. It's hard to recognize anyone from 100 yards away, especially if you don't have contacts. Just saying. And even when they got up on the shore, it said they did not dare ask him who he was. And so there's this still this sense of not being sure of his identity. When Luke tells us about the couple on the road to Emmaus, after um, the events of Easter, they are headed home after Passover. Jesus meets them on the road. This is Cleopas and another unnamed disciple. They don't recognize him either. They spend like six hours with the guy walking all the way down the road, sharing a meal with them, talking about scriptures with them. And it's not until Jesus takes and breaks the bread in front of them that they recognize him for who he is. So there's something different about this Jesus. Even though he's different, he is there. She doesn't know that he's there, but he is. He meets her in her moment of deepest distress. 
he sees her sorrow and he sees her grief and she doesn't understand what's happening she doesn't know what's going on but he does he knows he sees her and he offers her comfort in that moment he calls out to her he calls her by her name he says Mary and she turned and said to him in Aramaic Rabboni which means teacher when he calls to her she recognizes him and in that Good Shepherd passage it said I call my sheep and they follow me they know my voice they will not follow anyone else they follow me she hears his voice calling her by name and she runs to him she clings to him you can gather from his response that it's this overwhelming like throwing herself on him because he says do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father it's like he's saying it, it's really me I'm really here I haven't left yet I'm here it's me you can relax I haven't gone back to heaven yet I am going I'm going to my father and I'm going to my God tell the disciples tell my brothers that I'm doing that he turns her sorrow and her weeping into joy and Mary runs off to do what he has told her to do so there's this sense that when you see when you have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus then there is a responsibility to tell and the same thing happens when Jesus talks to Thomas and the other disciples later on when he talks to Peter by the Sea of Galilee they see him they have an encounter with him and then he has a task for them there there's a responsibility attached to seeing and knowing this Jesus um, I think with Mary and Jesus here we see just a beautiful truth that applies to us as well because Jesus is always with us he is always present even when we don't see him even when we don't recognize him he is always there he sees us and he knows us he knows the distress that we are going through he knows the things that grieve our souls he knows the depths of pain that we face and in those things in our deepest grief he he comes and he meets us and he supplies us with what we need to get through it for Mary he took that distress and changed it into something else and he does the same thing for us it's just that sometimes we can only see it in retrospect we can only see his presence when we look back and say oh so that's what he was doing he was with me I just didn't know it at the time so Mary runs she tells the disciples and it says on the evening of that day so it's hours later I mean she was there at first light and this is many many hours later they're in this locked room on the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you so they're in this locked room and somehow Jesus is all of a sudden there now there are some people who say that like he walked through the walls that this people will say the same thing about the linen cloths lying there that the reason they're laying there so neatly is because he somehow lifted up through them that this transformed body of his can pass through matter 
But the Bible doesn't say that. And so I'm going to call that speculation and say, we just don't know. However it is that Jesus got into the room is a mystery. But it's a miracle whether he walked through the walls or the door suddenly unlocked and flung open before him and he walked through or if he just suddenly appeared there. No matter how it happened, it's miraculous. And as you can imagine, they freaked out a little bit. I mean, that morning, some people, a handful, had gone to the tomb, found it empty. Mary says that she met Jesus, that he talked to her, but I mean, really? Really? Come on now. Peter and John went to the tomb, but they didn't see Jesus at the tomb. They just saw an empty tomb with some cloths laying there. They haven't seen him. And so they're in the in their room because they, they know what has happened. Just days before, the Jews have crucified Jesus, and they're afraid. They're afraid because Jesus' body is gone. I mean, their leader, the one that they had hoped in, had been crucified before their very eyes. They have watched it happen, and they're scared. They're scared. And then all of a sudden, this guy that you thought was dead is suddenly there. I mean, I might freak out a little bit. I don't know exactly how you would react, but I'm sure that they were filled with fear and um, more than a little bit of shock, more than a little bit of, oh my goodness, is that really you? What, how, how did this happen? What are you doing here? We thought you were dead. Can you imagine the conversations that were just spinning through the air as all of this was going down? And maybe as the reality started to sink in, there was some hugging some tears of joy can you i just imagine being in that room and the ruckus that must have ensued when jesus appears and so it makes sense that the first thing he says is peace be with you chill out it's okay peace be with you and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side yes it's really me i'm really here yes i am the same jesus who was on the cross Look, I've got the scars to prove it. It's really me. I'm really here. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And here we we see a little bit of what I mentioned before, that seeing the Lord carries with it a responsibility to tell. He commissions them. This is John's version of the Great Commission that we get in Matthew. It's a little different, um, and there's no reason why both of them couldn't occur. They probably did. But this is the story that John chooses to tell us, that he meets with the disciples in this room, and he says, The Father sent me. The Father is the sender. I am the sent one. I came. And together we are sending the Holy Spirit to fill you and to enable you to do the work that the Father has for you to do. You are going to be sent just like I was sent. And when the Father sent Jesus, we learned in John chapter 1, his purpose was to make God known, to reveal truth, to show us who God is. You know, he came that we might know the Father. And that is the job of the disciples now. The sent one is becoming the one who sins. But now Thomas was not with them. You know, a lot of times, poor Thomas catches all the flack, doubting Thomas. 
he just couldn't believe. But if we're being honest with ourselves, I think, I mean, we like proof too. Um, I'm a see it to believe it kind of person most of the time. Now there are some things I can accept as fact without without seeing the Bible. I got that. Um, a lot of the events of history. One of the commentaries I read said, "I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States, but I was I didn't see it. You know, I only have the word of historians to tell me that this was really true, but I believe it's true. And the same thing is true for us." On this side of the resurrection, we look at Thomas and we think, how could you not believe? But part of that is because we are so used to the idea of the resurrection. When it's Good Friday, we don't like to linger on that. We say Sunday is coming. You know, even as we are at the cross, we're looking forward to Easter Sunday because we know the end of the story, but they were in the middle of it. They did not know. They did not have the benefit of all of these years of theological instruction and the Bible to help them along the way. They were living it out and coming to terms with the resurrection in real life. And this is why I say whatever they expected from Jesus after his death, it wasn't this. They, they didn't know what to expect. And it caught them completely off guard. But the problem for us is that we have gotten so used to that idea of the resurrection that it's become almost commonplace to us we have lost our sense of wonder the awe that goes along with the idea that God can take something that is completely lifeless and has been lifeless for three days and can breathe life back into it that he can create life where there was no life before where only death reigned he can cast it out so that life has victory. But we are so used to the idea. It's like the background. It, it kind of fades into the background of our faith. But it is the foundation of our faith. It is the most important thing. Without it, we are, our faith is worthless. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another dead prophet. He is just like all the other men who have come and gone. It is the resurrection that sets him apart. And this is what Thomas recognizes when he sees Jesus. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And when Thomas sees this, when he sees this man who was once dead being very not dead in front of him, very physically alive with a body that he's saying, hey, hey, touch me here, poke my side, see for yourself, I am real. When he sees that, he recognizes that only God is capable of that. This confession that he gives, my Lord and my God, it's something different. People have called Jesus a lot of things throughout the Gospel of John, but nobody has straight up said, my God. They have called him the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. 
he has named himself all sorts of things. The bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. He has said all sorts of things about himself, but it is Thomas who recognizes him as God. Only God gives life. Only God has the power to restore life. Only God can create life where only death dwelled. Only God can do that. And that's what he sees. That's what he confesses. And John tells us in verse 30 that this is the point of the whole book. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He writes so that we can believe, so that we may be changed by what, what we know to be true about Jesus. In chapter 21, we have one last encounter with the risen Jesus. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now in Matthew, Jesus had told, or the angels had told Mary to go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee. So they went to Galilee, and they waited for Jesus there. The picture that John gives us is kind of this sense of purposelessness. They're there, and they're waiting, and Peter's like, well, I'm, I'm going to go fishing. Who wants to go with me? And so they pile in the boat, but they do not catch anything. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Again, there's that sense of not knowing. Jesus is right in front of them, and they just don't know. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And it's kind of like he's saying, Boys, got any fish out there? Hollering from the shore, 100 yards. That's a long way for a voice to carry. They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And it's funny to me that they do it without question. I'm afraid that I would not have had such a good attitude. What do you know? We've been here all night. We have fished on both sides of this boat, and we have caught nothing in all of that time. But sure, whatever you say, we'll try it. But they don't do that. They have a much better attitude than me. So, so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord again. John recognizes that something else is going on before anyone else. Just like seeing the linen cloths tipped him off that something else was going on. Same thing here. He says, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And that is such a weird detail. Most people put take their clothes off when they're jumping into water, but Simon Peter put his on he covered up he had taken his shirt off while he was fishing when he recognizes jesus he puts it back on it it harkens back way back to adam and eve in the garden when after they had sinned after they had eaten the fruit and god called out to them and they heard him in the garden they covered themselves because they were ashamed of what they had done. They hid from God. The last time Peter 
the last time there was any conversation, direct conversation with Jesus, um, written down for us between Peter and Jesus, Jesus told him that he was going to deny him. And then it turned out to be true. Peter denied Jesus. And even though he was still there with the disciples, I'm sure he was ashamed. They had to have known. It's not like it was a secret. They were all there when Jesus told Peter that. And so he probably felt guilty and ashamed and covers himself and he jumps in the water. But he doesn't, he doesn't feel so guilty or so ashamed that it keeps him from running to Jesus. And here's the thing. Whenever I sin or I know I have messed up, I have given into temptation, whatever it is, and I know it, I am overwhelmed with shame, and I want to hide from God. It might be a few days before I pray again, just being honest. might be a while before I open my Bible, because I can't bear to bring myself before Him until the memories of whatever failure have faded. I just can't stand knowing that he knows. Peter, though, he runs to Jesus. Even though he has fallen, even though he has um, shown himself to be just like the rest of us, a sinner who is prone to selfishness and self-preservation above all else, even though he has um, betrayed Jesus in that way, he still runs to him in the midst of that shame, to the only one who can restore him. He falls, and he falls hard. And it's one of those things where everybody saw it. They all know what happened to Peter, but he gets up, and he dusts himself off, and he keeps on heading to Jesus, to the only one who can give him what he needs and 100 yards is a long way to swim. I'm pretty sure I could not do that, especially with clothes on. Swimsuit, maybe I could like tread water or float on my back on the way to the shore. But Peter jumps in fully clothed and swims to shore. Everyone else comes along with him. They follow in the boat because they have their senses about them. But Peter is driven by emotion. Um, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. It just took all of them to haul it into the boat. But Simon goes and pulls it out by himself. He is a man with a purpose. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In this, we see that Jesus meets us. He met them in the ordinary spaces of life as something as common and mundane as breakfast. He provides for them their most basic needs. They needed to eat. They had been up all night fishing. They were hungry. And so he meets that need for them 
So Jesus is sharing a meal with them. But he also meets us in the everyday work of our hands. You know, he is there. They were fishing, but he was there with them and provided the fish for them. But I think for us, you know, before, before we can go out, before we can live in this resurrection life that Jesus has promised us, we have to come and be filled by him. We have to meet with him and allow him to fill us with the abundance that he supplies. Those fish that they hauled in from the shore came by his command, not by their work. And so when we try to get by on our own devices, it's just not, it's not going to work for us. We must come to Jesus. We must look to him to supply our most basic of needs. He said that he is the bread of life, that he is the eternal wellspring of living water, that he is the light of the world, he is the resurrection and the life. He is all of those things. And only when we come to him, when we meet with him, when we feast on his word, when we look to him for guidance, and we look to him for to sustain us, only then can we become who he wants us to be. When we receive the Holy Spirit, when we allow him to fill us, can we then live in the fullness of this life that he has promised us. For Peter, he had been filled with shame. He had denied Jesus three times. And three times here, Peter is questioned by Jesus. One for each of the times that he had denied him. In verse 15, he says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You know, back in the upper room, when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him, Peter didn't want to believe that it was true. But Jesus knew. He knew what was going to happen. So Peter must have been painfully aware of exactly how deep and wide and limitless the extent of Jesus' knowledge is. And so it says something about his sincerity that he can tell Jesus, you know, you know what's in my heart. You know that I love you. Now there's the verse in Psalms, search me and know my heart, O God. Peter's saying the same thing. Search me. Know me. I love you. You know that I love you. You know I do. Now, I've heard several times over the years, a lot of people make a big deal about the words for love that are used in this passage. Have you all ever heard that? That sometimes it's phileo, sometimes it's agape, and that 
Jesus is asking Peter if his love is the agape kind of love. Have y'all ever heard that? Okay. It is true that there are different words used here, but it is not necessarily true that the interpretation of it means that Jesus is asking Peter if his love is high enough. Because John uses the words interchangeably a lot in most of his writing. He also uses different words for sheep and lambs. And he also uses a different word for no in this passage. So he's a writer. He uses different words because otherwise it sounds repetitive. It might have a deeper meaning. I'll, I'll say that it might. But I think you have to be careful about making assertions like that as definitive. So um, I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying that in all likelihood, he was just kind of changing up the words that he was using here. And the important thrust is not, Peter, do you love me enough? But him restoring Peter for each of the times that he had denied him. He has um, taken that failure and he is replacing it with a purpose because Peter had been pretty high up in the ranks of the disciples before his whole denial incident. He had a position of leadership within the disciples. Jesus had said that Peter was going to be the one to lead the church. And then Peter went and denied Jesus in Jesus' hour of deepest need. He had turned his back on him. And so for Peter, you know he had to be wondering if that was still true. Like, am I still worthy? Am I still called? Am I useless? Like, is there... Am I worth anything in your kingdom, God? I can't even stand up for you when you need me to. But there is such grace here, y'all. There is so much grace in this. And it's a picture of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Because he doesn't expect or even want us to be perfect. He is. He's the perfect one. He expects us and wants us to have a heart that is fully his a heart that longs for and loves him we don't have to be perfect to serve him to be his to be effective for his kingdom we're human even though we are redeemed even though we have confessed jesus as lord and we know that we are forgiven of our sins we still sin we still mess up. And Jesus is saying, yes, you messed up, but do you love me? Do you love me? Let's move past that. Let's don't linger on it. Don't let that stop you from moving forward. I have a job for you to do. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be mine. You, Your heart has to belong to me. If you want to be effective for me. He restores the broken places of Peter's heart. And I think that in Peter we see a resurrection that is just as real as Jesus's. Because remember last week when we talked about Peter's denial, I said it was evidence of sin in his life. It shows us just how deep and how rooted and how 
dark sin is in our hearts that even the most devoted of Jesus' followers would struggle with it. Well, Jesus conquered death. And he lives where there was death. Now there is life. And for Peter, he takes that sin and he covers it with grace. And he says, no, that does not get the final say here. What happened back there is not the most important thing. What is the most important thing is that you are mine. Now act like it. Act like it. Move forward. And what we know about Peter from the book of Acts is that he becomes one of the most spirit-filled, bold believers in the entire history of the church. He saves thousands with his preaching. And if he had let that failure define him, then none of that ever would have happened. But Jesus, in his compassion, moves him past that. He gives him a job to do. God wants willing hearts that are his, that overflow and abound with love for him. That is all that he asks and all that he requires of us is that we surrender that to him. And after Peter has affirmed, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, then he tells him, follow me. He tells him a little bit about how he's going to die. And he says, follow me which is interesting because he has just told him, you're going to stretch out your hands, you're going to be led where you don't want to go. A lot of the traditions say that Peter was crucified upside down about 30 years later after this. But in following Jesus, we are led to places where we don't want to go. None of us would voluntarily head to the cross on our own. But sometimes the deepest and the darkest places that he leads us are the most necessary for transforming us and for giving us life, for making us into the person that he wants us to be. Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Stay in your lane, Peter. Don't worry about anybody else. You worry about you. And you keep your eyes on me and you'll be just fine. The same thing is true for us. I think it's easy to look at others who seem like they are just killing it in life. You know, they look like they never struggle. They never have any problems. Surely they never mess up. They don't struggle with the same things we struggle with. They don't think mean thoughts like we do. It's just me. They don't get angry they are so sweet and so kind. I want to be like her. And Jesus is telling Peter, look, whatever he's got, that's for him. That's my plan for him. 
you worry about you. As long as you look at me, as long as you are turning to me, then you will be just fine. And the same thing is true for us. We are to follow Jesus and not worry about those who surround us. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to them that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. We can spend our lives, and I suppose that most of us will, learning about him, getting to know him more, reading the scriptures over and over again and finding out new things every time. And we will never know all there is to know about him. We will spend eternity learning about him and we will never reach the end of that knowledge because he is infinite. He, he is limitless in all of his ways. But what we have seen and what we do know is enough for us. It is sufficient for our salvation. It is sufficient for our formation as believers who are growing in the knowledge of him. And we have seen him, I think, in these weeks for who he is. You know, way back in that first week we read John chapter 1, and it said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. I know that throughout this I have, and I hope that you have too. As we close this out, I want you to remember that the resurrection changes everything. It's not just an Easter day kind of celebration. It's an everyday celebration. We live our lives in light of the, the resurrection. Without it, we are, we're hopeless. But because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But also, we know that we have victory over the worst that life can throw at us. There is nothing worse than death. And Jesus has conquered the grave. So we know that we've got that. We remember truth when it would be easier to forget. We cling to hope when it seems like all hope is lost. We trust when it would be easier to not trust, to not believe. And we choose to believe even when the world tells us that we're crazy because we have seen his glory. And it's just like that other resurrection hymn says, I know that he is with me, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. And because of that, we live. It changes us. It changes sorrow into joy like it did for Mary. It changes disbelief into faith like it did for Thomas. And failure into purpose like it did for Peter. It fuels our lives. It is the bedrock of our faith and nothing less than that.